Welcome back to the latest edition of The Audible, presented by Trader Joe's. I'm Bruce Feldman, joined as always by Stuart Mandel. Uh, as we're taping this Sunday morning, a few hours ago, Texas A&M, word came out of there, as uh, first reported by Billy Lucci from Texags, but also uh, The Athletic. Jimbo Fisher is going to be fired today. Uh, not surprising. We've been talking about this and we've reported about the, his that A&M was going to be able to find the money. It's almost $80 million to get rid of him, but it's year six. And no matter, you know, beating Mississippi state wasn't going to change anybody's mind. Uh, I don't want to ask you if you're surprised, but what do you think A&M does now? Uh, just, just first of all, not surprised. I, I hope, you know, they just made it official as you were talking. Ross Bjork's going to have a press conference later today. If the first question isn't where is your $75 million coming from? Uh, then I would be uh, not happy with those reporters. I'm going to flip that back to you. I mean, we I feel like we've spent so much time over the last nine months talking about would they do it? Do they have the money? You know, what record would he have to get to? Which I think, given that they're doing this now, meant more than eight wins, which is the best they can get to. Which is um, honestly, we talked about this a week ago. There was a, there was a story in the Houston Chronicle by somebody who's been on the beat for a long time, yeah. Brent Swerneman. And I was just sitting there, and it came back to the same stuff. I remember week, like week three, they lo- they lost to Miami the week before, and I remember doing a big noon uh, hit on our show. And it's probably the most um, it was probably the most um, downloaded thing that I've had this season from that. And I was surprised at how much pushback there was from some from some A and M fans. And I was like, if you don't think that in year six that they are. And that's like what we were hearing, you know, you talk to people, they were like, yeah, they have the money. I mean, even like, uh, in the baseball playoffs, I remember hearing there was chatter between some big money people who went Astros, Astros Rangers or something. And it was just like, you would just every, at every turn, this was a hot topic. They're probably raising, walking around the, the suites at that, at those games, raising the funds. I, I do find it amusing. This came the day after a 51 to 10 win over Mississippi state, though. Apparently the decision had already been made. So knowing Texas, well, two things. When you fire a coach, as we know, you usually try to hire somebody who's the opposite of the guy you just fired. They went for national championship ring. At the time, offensive guru. Didn't work out that way. Um, After, you know, I would think whoever it is is going to have to run a typical modern college offense, not Jimbo's 15 years ago pro-style offense. Um, but you look, it's this school clearly has so much money and they care so much about winning and Texas is coming to the conference next year and they're going to want to show them they're going to try to make a big splash. They're not going to hire a Mac coach. So who out there would be deemed a big enough splash who they might actually have a chance to get? I don't think there is the splashy candidates in this pool. Right. To be honest, Um, almost none of the names who I think will get serious consideration are guys that anybody would have been really buzzing about three months ago. Here's here's the names start with. And there's definitely some overlap with the Mississippi, Michigan State search. So you have Lance Leipold. We've talked a lot about what he's done at Kansas. Um, Terrific coach, terrific culture, culture builder. would he leave? That's another question. But that is definitely one. Mike Elko, 
much more sample, shorter sample size as a head coach. Now he was on Jimbo's staff in College Station for four years. He's done really well, nine and four last year. Um, they they're six and four now, but all four losses are against ranked opponents. He has overachieved there. <clears throat> I don't think as as well regarded as Mike Elko is, at, or Lance Leipold, or Chris Kleiman at K State. I don't think any of those guys you would see as a splashy hire. The closest thing maybe to splashy in the college game, I think, would be as if either they went back to the Florida State route and tried to get Mike Norvell, who who grew up in Texas, to go there, or to try to get Dan Lanning or Kalen DeBoer. And Dan Lanning, who also has a big buyout, $20 million, not like Jimbo buyout, but big. Um, and both those guys in the Pacific Northwest, we've heard, are very... Uh, happy with the direction of things. Now, Dan Lanning has SEC experience. He was on Nick Saban's staff. He was he was on Kirby Smart staff. The other thing with with um, with them is if you're looking to make a big move and you already have a really good situation and you have a family that's pretty comfortable where you're at, um, do you sit there and go, you know what? I could wait. A, I maybe I better off riding this out, seeing if I can win a national title here. As opposed, and then maybe make a move to that big job in the SEC if it, you know, when Nick Saban decides to retire. And that's a job where people have won national titles. Whereas AM, since Bear Bryant was there, you've had two top five seasons in like 60 years one for Kevin Sumlin in his first year, one for Jimbo in the pandemic year of 2020. That's it. I mean, we're not even talking about national titles, we're talking about top five seasons. So, I think it's a small. Now, there is one huge splash candidate that I, from talking to an industry source this morning, I just think the timing, even if it was in this guy's head, I want to go home. I don't think it just the timing won't work out. And it just doesn't seem like it's a it's a realistic thing. And that's Dan Campbell. Dan Campbell would be the wow hire here. But, you know, he played at AM, he's from Texas. He's done a terrific job with the Lions. The Lions are six and two. They're, we think, probably going to be making a playoff run at that point. Dan Campbell's anybody who's ever watched anything of Dan Campbell in front of his team comes away wowed. He's exactly what AM probably wished they would have here. But I just don't see him walking away from everything he's been building in Detroit to go home. You know, and the timing just isn't right for that. But that to me would be the would be the wish list guy for them. You know, I the way the college calendar is now, I don't know if it's possible anymore to hire an NFL coach because they're not available, especially if they're not go a to the successful playoffs. one. Not yeah, a, if they're not available till January or February. Remember when Notre Dame hired Charlie Weiss, he coached the well, Patriots. He wasn't a coach either, though. No, but he stayed with the Patriots through the Super Bowl, but he also like did the signing day press conference and whatnot. That would never happen today. Like you need somebody who's available on November uh, 27th or whatever because the transfer portal is opening, early signing day is fast approaching. Well, so Jed I don't. Fish, Jed Fish got out from the page from those Patriots early when the Arizona job came open. But we're not talking about a head coach here. We're not talking about somebody who's like actively involved in the middle of everything. So I don't. The, so going back, I mean, Dan Lanning's the one that comes to mind for me, or Kalen DeBoer, either of whom. So they're going to be making this hire, let's say, in late November, early December. Either or both of those guys is going to have a top five team a playing for a spot in the playoff. 
like they're going to be considered that would be considered a win if you can get one of those guys. I think the lean would be towards landing because of the Kirby Smart SEC experience. Now, the twist there is, like you said, he has an unusual contract in which he owes the school money if he goes and gets another job. But if they are willing to pay $75 million to fire the one guy, they probably uh, have the money to do that. Again, timing. If Oregon goes to the college football playoff, we haven't seen it yet where a coach leaves his playoff team to go to a new Brian job. Brian Kelly's probably the closest of a, t- of a yeah. coach bailing on a situation where a team had some playoff hopes and he bailed on Notre Dame to jump at LSU. But let's say Oregon comes up just short. Um they're the first team left out or something. Then, then he'd probably go right instead of staying for. I don't know the that he I mean, he's got th- you know. He's got- I mean, if you wanted to go, he could he could do it. But I, I don't know. He might look at it and say, um, "I'm going to the Big Ten next year. Uh, it's not quite as psychotic, crazy at Oregon as it is at A and M. I like my chances here." Um, but but you know there was there was pause from some Oregon fans at the time they hired him. Like, Oh no, this is another guy with no ties to Oregon. Who's going to jump to the sec when he gets a chance. So I wouldn't be so sure of that. Yeah. I wouldn't be so sure of that. Kalen DeBoer might be more of a, um, I mean, it just kind of depends on, okay, those two schools are going to the big 10. I think going forward, if you are not in one of those two conferences and you get a chance to go into one of those two conferences, you've got to take it. Now those two are going into the big 10. But they're also going in at half price. Like there is a notion that, and I would say this of Washington more than Oregon, because Phil Knight will will cover the difference at Oregon. This could be a bit of an uphill challenge that we're going to be competing against teams that are making twice as much conference money as we are. And, and, and also his AD, Jen Cohen, who hired left. him, she is now at USC. So again, I, I don't. I don't think it's, it'll be a slam dunk. Kalen DeBoer, look at it. I got to leave here. He knows. I mean, Seattle, it's a, it's a really good situation. They are at a high level right now. And look, I don't know how, you know, look, there's a lot of football left. The other, the other name that, that people really respect, I just would not see him in college station is Jonathan Smith at Oregon state. They're eight and two. He's done a terrific job. Their program is being left in the dust by the by the remnants of everything that's the fallout from the Pac-12. And Jonathan Smith, by the way, it will be in the national spotlight over the next two weeks because they play number five, Washington, and then the arch-rival uh, arch Ducks, number six. I mean, even if he went to one of those two, that's a big if. And they go, you know, nine and three. You know, they, they really handled Utah earlier in the year. I mean, that's a tough place to win. But I just... I just don't, as much as I respect him, I just don't see him as the head coach in College Station right now. First of all, isn't it amazing that Oregon State, this program that's going to be left for scraps next year, is, like you said, like the next two weeks are playing in the big, next week's the Saturday night ABC primetime game, and the week after that is um, is Black Friday primetime game. Like, they're in the spotlight. They're, you would think this would be a sought-after program, not one that, is going to be a glorified Mountain West program next year. Uh, the thing is, Bruce, a another possible option for Jonathan Smith that I not would not have thought of before Saturday came up. Um, Chip Kelly suffered about as bad a loss as you could Saturday night. A beat up Arizona State team uh, beats them seventeen to seven in the Rose Bowl, and this was like, I mean, this just felt like the moment where UCLA fans said, "We've had it." Uh, they were booing like crazy at the Rose Bowl. The, if you, if you search fire chip on Twitter, 
Now, this is a little bit abrupt because they were in the top 25 two weeks ago. But you look at it, he's been there six years and he has a 500 record. And they're about to go to the Big Ten. His buyout is not prohibitive. Um, he better beat USC this week, right? Because this is a very, this is a reeling USC team. If you can't beat them this year, maybe you won't. So anyway, I'm not saying for sure that job's coming open, but if it did, guess where Jonathan Smith is from? Yeah, he's basically from Pasadena. Pasadena, site of that awful loss last night. Yeah. Because I agree. I think even though it's his alma mater, Jonathan Smith would be nuts not to find a soft landing with what's going on with that program. And, but I find, I mean, knowing him, knowing his personality, like Texas A&M doesn't really, um, that I'm hard. It's hard for me to picture that, but UCLA, one of the least programs in the country that I could, I just don't see him as, I wouldn't be surprised to see him in a big 12 school or a big 10 school. I just don't see him at like one of those sec schools. Well, UCLA would make a lot of sense if that were to come to pass. So, um, upshot, you know, I could see A&M, like we said, you, you hired the opposite of what you just fired. I believe Jimbo, what is he? 60? I don't know. I could see, I could see them wanting to hire a young up and comer of which both Kalen DeBoer and, um, Dan Lanning fit the bill. Okay. Before this news dropped on Sunday morning, there was a, um, much bigger news <laughs> in college football Friday and Saturday. Um, we last recorded our podcast Thursday night where we were waiting to see if the Big Ten would suspend Harbaugh. They did for the rest of the regular season. They did. They waited until they were on the plane to State College, which did not go over well at Michigan. Uh, Michigan fired back both in uh, – well, they went and sought a temporary restraining order. They did not get it. Uh, once they did not get it, Ward Manuel, the AD, put about us. Blistering a statement, I think, as I've ever seen an AD put out about his own conference. You were there. You were at the center of the storm. You were in State College Saturday morning doing a big noon kickoff when it finally came down for sure that he was not going to be coaching in the game. What was that like? Very surreal as it's happening in real time where people, you know, honestly, inside the league were like expecting that they were going to get the temporary restraining order and that even though he did not travel with the team, they were staying eight miles away, that he would end up getting there um and then when we heard that there was a that there's a hearing now for a preliminary injunction which is you know not to get too into the legal into the weeds legally but like it's different than a than a tro um and that one at least as my understanding from yesterday was was going to be with the judge that people thought was going to have it but didn't over the weekend and so when Ward Manuel issued his statement and being around the Michigan sidelines, I mean, you know how like a few weeks, a month or so ago, Ryan Day did a, hey, it's Ohio against everybody. The the Michigan versus everybody shirts that a lot of people were wearing on the Michigan sideline, like that's a real thing for them because to this point, in the first, you know, five minutes of the game, great, you know, great crowd environment and everything at Penn State. Um. Michigan has, I want to say it's like a fourth and, you know, a fourth and two or a fourth and three. And there is a play where um, the P Penn State rusher runs into the punter and there's a flag thrown. And it's like, it's not a roughing, but it's still going to be enough to get a first down. And you're like, that's like a turnover. And they picked up the flag. And one of the people on the Michigan sideline, the staffer was like, 
we're playing 12 people now and they feel like these are the big 10 refs. This is what, this is what we're up against now. And it's not to say that they got every call yesterday or every call went against them. But I think right now that is the vibe. If you're Michigan, you heard it. Um, Sharon Moore was, who's usually fairly measured with dealing with the media was extremely emotional. I don't know if you saw his interview post game with Jenny. How Tapp. could you not see that interview? Yeah, it 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 went from like zero to a thousand in a hurry, and that right now is the vibe of the a vibe around the program, and it is going to be must see TV right through. Like we'll see what happens. You know whether the injunction is granted. Um, Either Friday or after Friday, they play at Maryland this weekend. It's another big noon game, and then obviously Thanksgiving weekend is going to be the you know the biggest game of the season, which is going to feel like a gladiator battle between Ohio State and Michigan in Ann Arbor. Um, I just you know watching the game, by the way, like Michigan's really good. You know, like yeah. they, the, I think this is not an insignificant thing. Sharon Moore was obviously the, it was the O line coach as well as the acting head coach. They ran the ball 30 times in a row against what was the number one run defense in the country. Like Blake Corum went off. Donovan Edwards had a good game. I mean, JJ McCarthy had a moment where he's like, he was hobbled a little bit, but it was like, yeah, we're in your place. We're going to, we're going to show you that we're the, we're, we're the beasts of the big 10, whether Jim Harbaugh is here or not. And I think it's a really, you know, just from watching this up close, it's a fascinating situation that keeps unfolding. Yeah, I mean, there's there's the off-field and there's the on-field. And on-field, everybody in waiting to see them play a quote-unquote real game, um, they pass the test. Now, I'm sure the you'll then see people say, well, Penn State's not very good. Like, they can't. Their Penn offense, offense is not good. It's like, not good at like, all. It's like, really not. Go read Audrey Snyder's story today, if you want, from our colleague. But it's like, this is the second time I've seen Penn State in person. And... Everything is hard for them offensively. That you know, Drew Aller, I think, can throw the ball, but it's just like, you know, can he? Can he though? Like yeah. there was so you know, you remember the infamous fourth and sixth. Two plays before that, Gus goes, Drew Aller, he he's got an arm or he's got a great arm, and I'm thinking, does he though? Maybe he did as a five star recruit, but I haven't seen it in uh, in state college, and that was such a weird play. You know, James Franklin had played it very conservative. He finally, you know, time's running down. He finally goes for it on fourth down. And Drew Allard takes the snap and almost immediately throws it downfield. I think either there was a miscommunication or something. There's nobody there. He threw it to, to grass. So, yeah, I mean, that's a that's a, that's a a big problem in Penn State. But I think, to your point, Michigan, to this point, had been much more, I mean, I don't know, people might not have been paying close attention. Like, J.J. McCarthy basically became the star this year. And Blake Corm, who was a top 10 Heisman vote getter last year, who might have actually contended for it if he hadn't gotten hurt, was kind of an afterthought. And then this was the game where it was like, oh, yeah, right. They still have him and Donovan Edwards. They can still run the ball down your throat uh, when they need to. And, you know, I think it seemed like they realized pretty early on they were going to have trouble, you know, with the pass protection because that's a great Chopper Robinson was back. That is a great Penn State pass rush. So they just didn't. They just didn't pass. And that's fine. Um, I thought they passed the test with flying colors, you know, especially given everything that was going on around them. The other thing I would say is, I mean, look, a lot of people are, um, a lot of people hate Michigan right now and, and all the deflection and the 
trying to, to rationalize away what the, what Connor Stallions did or why they shouldn't be punished. And so Sharon Moore, like you said, breaks down crying and is going like, I love you, Coach Harbaugh, I love you. I love you so damn much. And people are like uh, criticizing him for that because how dare you, you know, stand up for that guy. And it's like people don't realize the stuff going on around like the NCAA, like that's for Ward Manuel. That's for Jim Harbaugh. The, the coordinators and the assistants and certainly the players, they're they're trying to win games. They're, they, you know, you, teams are close-knit. And it was an insane situation. If I'm Sharon Moore and I find out the day uh, before the game that I'm going to be acting head coach for the biggest game of the season so far, I, think he knew that. I could see where you'd be emotional. Yeah, I think he yeah. probably knew that that was the scenario that if he did get suspended, he would be. I don't think he, you know, knew that. I think he probably knew that, you know, a few days before that. I mean, I, I guess what I'm saying is I have more sympathy for the guy for the guys in the program who can tell like we're under attack. Manny well, Diaz is doing the mock signal thing. Then I, I do for the yeah. It's the players, you know, like you can say whatever you want about Jim Harbaugh. Um, but I think it's at the end of the day, it's the players that are in the middle of this. Like the weird thing, and we didn't get into too much of the of Tony Petiti's, you know, statements on Friday and that came out in the suspension. But like, it is weird to me that he said, this is not a sanction of Jim Harbaugh, but he was sanctioning Michigan because Jim Harbaugh epitomized, you know, embodies the program. Mm -hmm. It's absolutely a sanction of Jim Harbaugh. You're suspending him. You know, it just like the, it, it felt very much like, and I get some of this were, were, you know, legalese where it's in the weeds. But also, it felt very much like when we talk about the nonsense of the CFP, you know, press conferences or interviews after they say it. And it's like, all right, you're saying one thing, but you're not, you know, that's the, the reality is not what you're saying. Uh, so I had uh, set, we have a, a lawyer on our staff now, Catherine Briley, and I checked with a couple other lawyers and they all thought that Petiti's case was laid out really well. The lawyers did a really good job on it. And, and it almost is anticipating that they're going to have to defend a motion. That was the one line that made people roll their eyes. Uh, but I get why they did it. They're trying to say, because, you know, it, Michigan's automatic defense against this is you openly admitted you don't have any proof Harbaugh was part of this. How can you punish him? And they're trying to say, because we're punishing the program and he's the face of the program. But then you're basically you're punishing the you're punishing, you're punishing, him. You're punishing him. But, but you're also punishing. The I mean, I think the most damning stuff in there was. That they said, you know, Michigan is saying we, you know, we haven't had time to respond. We haven't had time to look at the evidence. And they laid out there in great detail exactly how the timeline all went down, where the NCA shared the this master spreadsheet with the Big Ten, and then they then shared it with Michigan. And Michigan knew exactly what it said. And to try to claim otherwise, you know, they took great great umbrage to that. Um, they took great umbrage to trying to. Play well, the see other guys do this. Why would you punish us? These other guys are stealing our signs. They hadn't been, nobody had been interviewed in this process either. Well, here's the thing. I I don't think you have to at this point. Like you will eventually. And as they said, it might lead to more sanctions. But it's very rare in a case like this that somebody just hands you the evidence on a silver platter. Here's the master spreadsheet where Connor Stallions kept track of every game they were buying tickets to and who was going to them. So you have enough right there to punish them. And maybe you'll come back and punish them more if but interviews. What is the punishment if, at that point? In it? 
there was never going to be a good, I mean, that's the thing. I, I will maintain that the most sensible punishment, but it would have been cruel to the players. I don't think was, that's sensible at all to ban the players. No. Well, no, it's sensible in that if you're that's saying, well, we're not punishing Jim Harbaugh, we're punishing the program. Obviously, that's punishing the program. But I have sympathy for that's not the players don't deserve players. to be punished. Yeah, but that well, I'm not sure. Not, I'm not sure suspending the head coach, but letting him coach during the week is all that sensible either. I'm not. Look, I, I don't know about the suspending him and then you let him let him coach during the week too. That's that's at odds. But the idea that you you ban the the players from the postseason to me that isn't. I I don't. I definitely don't agree with that. I yeah, it's too harsh. But we'll see. You know, if this judge comes back and says we're granting you the injunction because you because you punished a guy who had no. Um, link to the to the crime, if you will, um, then you're gonna. Then there would be a pretty strong sign that like they weren't able to that that was a stretch to make that conclusion. Want to get to some other things that happened in college football on Saturday? I thought Georgia finally said enough. Stop nitpicking us. We're Georgia. Ole Miss actually got off to a good start. It was 14 all, and then Georgia dominated the whole rest of the game. We saw Brock Bowers come back healthy. Lad McConkey with some big plays, but they just ran the ball down Ole Miss' throat, and they, um, there was some, you know, you wondered a little bit going into it. Ole Miss has Quinshawn Judkins; they have a good running game. Dumas Johnson was out for Georgia, no problem. They shut him down. So we'll see what happens with the committee rankings this week. Ohio State obviously destroyed Michigan State, so it's not like they did anything wrong. But I think if you want to go ahead and I would say correct the record and have Georgia number one, uh, this would be the week to do it. Um, in terms, And then maybe, but I don't think they'll then put Michigan number two, although they could, I guess, off this hey, on, big on, win. So we talked about this last week, the Alabama-Texas dynamic. Texas was done no favors by its conference. Uh, no, it all Oklahoma broke wrong. got blown off the field by UCF. Oklahoma State got blown off the field by UCF. Kansas, which was one of Texas's only top 25 wins, Lost to down Texas to Tech, quarterback, by the way. so that yeah, down with search and quarterback, so they'll be out. Yeah, I mean Texas's resume now is the Alabama game, um, Kansas State too, but Kansas State has three losses. So now nothing, nothing is going right for them. Uh, and then Texas itself is a bit puzzling in that they keep building these big leads, twenty point leads, and then watching them almost go all the way, and then almost blowing them. Even TCU, which frankly doesn't have much going for them was able to get back to within three points at the end before Quinn Ewers um, hit A.D. Mitchell for the long pass that sealed it. So they're playing with fire a little bit, it feels like, but I don't know that there's anybody left that can take advantage of that. Um, Washington played with fire for a half against Utah. It was 28-24 Utah at the half. And at that point, I'm thinking, you know what? Washington's defense is just not good. They, you know, This is three weeks now of this. And then they shut out Utah in the second half, and and Penix did, did his Penix stuff. And, you know, now they have to turn around. They're 10-0 for only the second time in history, the first one being the 91 national championship season. And now they got to turn around and go to Oregon State, and it's going to be, you know, rocking in Corvallis next week. But obviously they've got, they've got a little bit margin for error. Um, Oregon does not. Oregon, um, I, I, it wasn't quite as convincing a win as I thought it would be against USC. But at the end of the day, Bo Nix threw for 400 yards and four touchdowns. So I can't really find fault with that. Bo Nix now, 29 touchdowns, two interceptions. His first two touchdowns against USC, 
were 80 plus, you know, yard plays. One of them where USC safety looked about as bad on the play as it's impossible. Oh, USC's defense was like a Keystone cops. Yeah. I mean, look, we didn't this. There's a lot of issues at USC that go beyond Alex Grinch. And I think we saw some of those uh, last night on the bonex front. So for me, Jaden Daniels was remarkable yesterday. At one point, I thought he was going to run for 300 yards and throw for 300. He ended up throwing for over 300 and ran for like 240. He's um, the first player in history. He was the first player in history to throw for 350 and run for 200. He, he's just been sensational for LSU. Um, and by the way, LSU keeps giving up a ton of points on defense and struggles mightily on that side of it. Um, the Heisman race to me, I know people don't care that much about it, but I feel like it's like some version of Bo Nix against um, Michael Penix, maybe in the in the Pac-12 title, and then there's Jaden Daniels. And Marvin Harrison. Maybe. I don't I, I think he is I think he needs one of those other guys. You know, Marvin Harrison can go for like 10 for 190 against Michigan. And I think he would probably get a lot of votes if they win. But short of that, I feel like um I feel like it's the quarterbacks. It's hard to beat the quarterbacks. And so to me, you know, I Jaden Daniels is number one for me right now. But I also because I think he's having a, you know, I won't quite go quite this far, but the dual threat Heisman voters love the dual threat guys, the Johnny Manziel's, the uh, RG three, Lamar Jackson being the most, you know, I think biggest case of that. And but he's doing it for a team that's not in contention for anything. And so like that amazing game last night it was on SEC Network. Um, they've got two games left. They're not going to be playing on the final weekend of the season. And I think that's really going to hurt him that he's going to be on the sideline or at home while Bo Nix, Michael Penix, maybe Marvin Harrison are playing, you know, for championships and playoffs, conference championships and playoff spots. And the Knicks Penix thing might just simply come down to if they play again in the championship, who has the better game. But I think as hot as Penix was early in the season, and look, he's still having a phenomenal season, but Nix is, is doing just absolutely like Nix is completing 77.7% of his passes, 29 TDs, two interceptions. Uh, I feel like between the two, he has jumped ahead of Penix. All right. So time for shout outs. Um, I'm going to go first. My shout out is going to be Matt Campbell in Iowa state. Um, they blew out BYU on the road yesterday, 45 to 13 to get bowl eligible. They're hanging around now at five and two in the big 12. And as our colleague who is the, the expert on all things, Iowa Scott Dockerman pointed out major accomplishment by Matt Campbell to get bowl eligible. His team was decimated by the gambling situation. And I think that's a story that probably didn't get covered enough nationally, but obviously they had all sorts of, um, next man up having to go on there and it's a good season for it for a program that had, had stumbled after they went to number nine in the country a few years back and it's not done i mean bowl eligible is one thing they're still one of the teams in the mix for the big 12 title game and they play texas in ames next week i feel like that's ames is often the site of a big upset and i mean you know i mean they're good they're not just bowl eligible they're good so shout out to matt campbell and the cyclones um Mine's going to go to former SEC coach, now Mountain West coach, Barry Odom. What he's doing at UNLV is incredible. 
I mean, UNLV has been so bad for so long. They are, as of now, tied for first in the Mountain West with Air Force, who they play this week. They've reached eight wins for the first time since 2000. And if they, the next time, I think they'll, you know, let's say they win next week or the week after to get to nine wins. Bruce, not since 1984. Heck of a first year for Barry Odom uh, at a program that has just felt so uh, stuck for so long. And uh, I'm interested to see what goes down the stretch. I mean, it's crazy to say this, but if they were to win the Mountain West, they might go to a New Year's Six Bowl, um, which is which would be just off the charts phenomenal. As always, you can send your emails to the audiblepod at gmail.com for our second episode of the week, and we will see you next time.